This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. As the total number of nurse practitioners increases nationwide to the current estimated 150,000, so are more nurse practitioners also being named in lawsuits. Despite this reality, the rate of nurse practitioners being sued is extremely low. With me today is nurse practitioner Julia Palantino, lawyer and former medical malpractice attorney, and we're discussing malpractice issues pertaining to advanced practice clinicians focusing on nurse practitioners. Hello, Julia. Welcome to ReachMD. Hello there, Mimi. Thank you for letting me join you today. It's a pleasure. So is it true that we're really seeing a rise in malpractice claims against nurse practitioners? And why? Well, maybe we are seeing a rise, and if you look at the National Practitioner Database, which is a source of most of the information we have nationwide about malpractice, you'll see that it reflects not only an increase in the number of claims, but also the value of the verdicts that are coming down. You know, we have more nurse practitioners practicing now, and they are practicing in more diverse settings as well. Also, we're seeing more and more nurse practitioners practice in independent settings, And all of these factors are coming together to increase the risk of being sued. What can a nurse practitioner do to help reduce his or her risk of having a malpractice claim filed? I have a presentation I do where I try to distill this to four important behaviors that I believe will reduce the possibility of being the target of a malpractice suit. And these are communication, caring, competence, and charting. I call them my four C's. These behaviors, when practiced every day, can go a long way to preventing malpractice actions. And when you refer to the first one, communication, what exactly are you referring to? Well, I think this is the most important one of all, and I've seen it in many publications talking about malpractice prevention, and that the communication between the patient and the provider is the most important thing that you can do in order to prevent malpractice keeping the patient engaged, keeping the patient well-informed, responding to patients' concerns, or even when they are upset and they are not happy with what's happened, it's very important that those communication lines stay open. I've seen patients forgive some pretty significant, serious medical errors just because there was open communication, questions were answered, and the patient felt that he or she had been given the appropriate care even under these adverse circumstances. Which leads into your second C, the caring. Yes, caring is something I think that nurse practitioners do just about the best. If we continue to keep that caring portion of our nursing background up there in front, we're going to find it a lot easier to avoid malpractice. And certainly competence is key. And what would you say specifically about that? Well, just because we communicate well and we're caring, if we don't know what we're doing, certainly we're at risk for malpractice action. So it's very important to stay current to know what you're doing, and to not step outside the areas where you've been trained. So when referral to a specialist is the right thing to do, it's important that you do that. So competence and maintaining competence is the third C. And as we increasingly have to see patients more quickly, that fourth C, charting, that becomes increasingly important but also more challenging. It is a challenge. It's a challenge all the time, and of course, we're going to be seeing some big changes in charting in the future as more and more of us are converting to electronic medical records. Obviously, we cannot chart every single detail of every single transaction that we take part in, but we really do need to focus on the important points in, for example, a physical examination 
or if there is a particular part of the exam that is especially important given a particular circumstance, then we need to be sure that that part is charted. In a recent case that I read about, neurologists failed to document that a young teenager was able to put his chin to his neck when he was having that headache that we worry about meningitis. He did it, according to his testimony, but there was nothing in the record that indicated it. And that failure to chart such an important differential was his downfall. So charting is very important. What of these four C's would you say is the most important in preventing malpractice? Well, you know, I think they're all important, but communication to me is maybe the most important one. What do you think about the trend toward electronic medical records? Do you think that that will help reduce medical malpractice risk? Or, you know, what is your take on this trend, inevitable trend? Well, it is inevitable. What I think about EMR is that it's a two-edged sword. For one, it's quicker usually once we get past that learning curve to document I'm finding that when I look at EMR records, they are very thorough. One of the problems I see is the large amount of information that we see on a page, especially in a printed out EMR record. In entering the information, sometimes that little push of the button can happen too quickly and there's obviously an opportunity to make mistakes and to chart something inaccurately, so we have to pay more attention. And I think that's a little easier when you're working with a computer to make that kind of error and to miss the correction of that error. So in that sense, it may not help us. In another sense, it's certainly going to be more legible than many of our records are today, and that will help. What I find, Julia, is I'm recording on the EMR as I'm interviewing the patient, and so it is easy to, I mean, you have more information, but you can also find it harder to edit as you go because you're between the patient and the electronic record. Very true. And one of the other complaints I hear from patients is that their providers are paying more attention to their record and less attention to the patient. And that's also another interference that, again, brings up that idea of communication and how important that is. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Julia Palantino, also a lawyer and we're discussing medical legal issues pertaining to advanced practice clinicians focusing on nurse practitioners. So what about altering a medical record? Is there ever a circumstance when that's okay to do? Well, you know, we all have learned that in order to correct a mistake or when we write something erroneously, that we must line out, date, and sign that change. And that date is important. One of the things that you never should do is alter a record after you've received a request for copies of records from a lawyer. I had a personal experience with this in a defense case that I was involved in. The individual came to us with a copy of her record, and her claim was that she had not been given appropriate informed consent prior to agreeing to a plastic surgery procedure. She was extremely unhappy with the outcome and said she wouldn't have uh, done this procedure if she'd been given appropriate informed consent. However, Mm -hmm. when we requested copies of the physician's records, there was a complete and very thorough informed consent documented in that record. And what was very clear was that that had been added later after those records had been initially requested. A situation Mm. like that, there's not much the defense attorney can do other than settle the case. If you've finalized an electronic medical record entry and then you want to make a change, 
How best should you do that? Should you edit the actual note or add an addendum? What's your recommendation, Julia? I believe that all the electronic medical record systems have a method for making those changes. And I would follow the method that is indicated for the particular type of medical record, EMR, that you're using. But it will always be dated with that change, and it will indicate that it is a change. It's not that we can't fix mistakes. We just need to be upfront about when and how they were fixed. I've heard telephone calls are another source of risk for malpractice. Is that true? And, you know, can you explain a little bit more about that? Telephone calls are certainly an area for malpractice risk. When you think about all the things that we do on a telephone in a busy medical practice, you can imagine the potential is there. In my office, you know, we refill prescriptions, we answer patients' questions, we evaluate them and try to determine do they need to be seen now, can it wait for another time, or is this an emergent situation that we need to send them out for. So telephone records need to be written. One of the other things I've seen is that they're taken much more lightly. We don't see the written documentation as thorough and complete as we might see in the regular records. So you do need to have a written documentation that's dated and that indicates the problem and the resolution. If you do that, you're going to be in pretty good stead with those telephone situations. In one case that I dealt with, it was the telephone records that helped save us from a very large Mm -hmm. verdict because in that case we had indicated in the telephone records that the patient should have discontinued a particular medication. They didn't do as they were told and suffered an adverse effect because of that, but our telephone records helped us to reduce Mm. that verdict. Is email a safer way to prevent misunderstandings, creating a record for communications with nurse practitioners? What do you think about email? Well, I really was looking forward to the idea of using email as an efficient and thorough way to communicate with patients, but there are some pitfalls. One of the things that I noticed in reviewing a case not too long ago that involved entirely set of email communications over an extended period of time was that the practitioner, first of all, failed to bring the person in to be actually seen. The complaints were misunderstood, and the patient ultimately suffered a stroke. The Mm. nurse practitioner who was communicating by email thought her patient was having some side effects of her diabetes and was making adjustments related to diabetes. But when we went back and looked at the written documents, it was pretty clear that she missed some important signs and symptoms. So email can be helpful, but it can also be dangerous. And one of the things I think is very important is that whenever you feel like the patient needs to be seen, don't let that email communication substitute for bringing the patient in and taking a look. Are there certain nurse practitioner specialties that are at higher risk for malpractice claims, Julia? The research says that nurses in obstetrics, surgery, and anesthesia, the CRNAs, are at the highest risk. And uh, that has held true for a long time. And is that where the majority of lawsuits are also? Those are the areas where we saw some of the largest verdicts. If I think probably if you mm. look only at numbers, there might be more numbers coming out of the medical office in family practice and that, but those tend to be smaller verdicts. What are the nurse practitioner actions that are most likely to result in a malpractice action? What we've seen in order of importance or frequency is the number one, failure to diagnose. The one that comes to my mind most frequently is breast cancer. I've seen it over and over. Failure to be more proactive with a lump and basically fail to diagnose until too late. 
failure to treat or monitor in treatment, that's pretty self-explanatory. Monitoring, I see the failure to follow up on particular labs or to have those put into the record and get attention so things get missed. Again, breast cancer comes to mind because I've seen that as well, where uh, biopsies came back with some questionable things, but somebody filed them away and no one ever paid attention and the results were very sad. And last but not least, improper management of the patient. One of the things you need to keep in mind is if this patient has complaints, issues that you've not been able to address, don't fail to refer to specialists for more help. I always say when in doubt, you know, refer, get a second opinion, get a consultation, have someone else check that patient. I completely agree. What are the states where the most malpractice claims are filed? Well, I live in one, actually the number one, Florida. As a result, we get to pay some of the highest malpractice premiums as well. So we see Florida, California, New York, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania uh, pretty much in that order as among the highest malpractice claims. But if you look at these numbers, these are also the states where you see some of the highest number of practicing nurse practitioners. So it makes sense. Why are malpractice premiums increasing? Well, you know, there's a number of factors that go into that. First of all, there are fewer malpractice insurers out there. Some years ago when I was practicing law, there were a large number of malpractice insurers because they were able to make a living doing it. But today we see a very few number, and that limits competition. So that's one factor. Another is that we're seeing lesser interest rates, lesser return on investment. And it's that return on investment that helps to make the large amount of money necessary to pay off verdicts when they come due. So we're seeing a smaller investment return. You and I have seen recently an interest rates of 1%, and even the stock market has had a downturn not too long ago. So that's another factor. And the third is that we're seeing an increasing number of malpractice claims with losses. So it's a three-part explanation for why we're seeing higher prices. Do you have any final closing thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners on this very, very important subject, Julia? Well, I think I'd just kind of go back to the original and say, Open communication, treating your patient with respect, maintaining competence, definitely have yourself covered with your malpractice insurance. And there's still very few nurse practitioners being the focus of medical malpractice actions. So I think that you need to do a good job and try not to spend a lot of time worrying about malpractice. Great advice. Thank you, Julia. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Mimi. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD XM160. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.